I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. A week before Deborah Andrasik's daughter Gabrielle turned one, she suffered her first seizure. Within a year, Gabrielle was diagnosed with cacna A1A-related disorder, a rare neurodegenerative condition. At the time, she was the eighth known person to be diagnosed with the disorder. We spoke to Andrasik, who is a pediatrician, along with cacna A1A Foundation Vice President Sunitha Malapati about cacna A1A-related disorder, how it progresses, and what the cacna A1A Foundation is doing to advance research to speed the development of treatments and a cure. Deb, Sunitha, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us, Danny. We're going to talk about cacna A1A, your experience with the neurodevelopment disorder and the work that the cacna A1A Foundation is doing to accelerate research and therapeutic development for the condition. Deb, I, I wanted to begin with you and your daughter, Gabrielle, who was born in 2013. When did you first notice a problem? So I'll start by saying that I'm a general pediatrician, but there's nothing like being a first-time parent. And so when I welcomed my first daughter, Gabrielle, um, I, I started to notice some delays her first year, but I, I mostly w- wasn't sure what to do about that. And so as she got older, they became more and more obvious. So at two months, I noticed that she didn't make great eye contact. At four months, she wasn't rolling over. At six months, she wasn't sitting. Um, but, but then she would, she would start to, you know, roll and and start to do a tripod sit and and give me hope. But by 10 months, it was really obvious that she had pretty significant delays. And so I actually started out with early intervention and had them evaluate her, um, and was just devastated to, to get the results that she just was globally delayed. I think I just had my mom eyes on and, and didn't realize how significant she was behind on gross motor, fine motor, social, and communication milestones. What was done to follow her progress and, and perhaps get a diagnosis? Yeah, so so interestingly enough, I was seeing a pediatrician her first year of life who didn't do standard developmental screening, and so I think that's partially why her first year of milestones were somewhat missed. Um, but then after that first year of her, her delays being obvious by her first birthday, she also had a really significant seizure. So she um, just out of the blue had an hour long seizure that landed us in a, you know, in a hospital and then a brain MRI that had some um, abnormal findings. At the time we were told, uh, well, first of all, we had to push for the brain MRI. They didn't want to do an MRI because they were thinking it was a simple febrile seizure, which is a common pediatric condition that you really don't get too concerned about. But Gabby didn't have fever and her seizure was um, an hour long and she had global delays. So I did push to get the MRI, which um, I think as a pediatrician, I knew to push for that. They found the abnormal brain um, findings, um, but then still felt like maybe this was just a one-time seizure. The fact that you're trained as a pediatrician did that changed the way health professionals interacted with you or the way you may have reacted to what professionals you consulted told you? 
I think it de- it definitely changed probably everything in my in our plan and our, our progress that year because she started having seizures. We really wanted to have the best care for her, and we were in the military system, both working as military um, physicians, my husband and myself. And so within six months of her getting her um, abnormal brain MRI, her global delay diagnosis and her now epilepsy because she had multiple seizures, we were sent to a specialized center where I had worked previously. So it was a department I had worked in and I, within you know a couple of days, had um, an EEG, neurology, developmental pediatrics and genetics all evaluating Gabrielle. Um, and genetics went ahead and offered the whole exome sequencing. And if, if you remember, this was back in 2015 when that was really mostly uncovered by by insurance, um, but we had TRICARE insurance, and so it was covered. And so we were able to be one, one of the first in the country, really, to get that whole exome sequencing. And I think being a pediatrician uh, and working in a system where I, I actually was working uh, was a huge benefit. And unfortunately, I think a very different um, odyssey, you know, planned journey for other families, where other families usually are on many years of an odyssey trying to get a diagnosis. You know, listening to you now, you you speak very calmly, and you, you even talk about febrile seizures not being all that uh, unusual in uh, a young patient. But being a mother, what was it like to see your daughter go into a seizure? Uh, well, Danny, that's a, a funny question. Um, I was not calm at all with that first seizure. I actually, um, it was quite dramatic. I, I still feel like it was like a movie. Um, we were, we were on a dirt road in El Paso drinking wine, and she started having a seizure, and I just yelled out, like, call 911. By the time the ambulance got there, the seizure had progressed and w- was looking more significant, and I was actually so hysterical, they would not allow me in the ambulance. I was, it was just the worst thing to see your child have a seizure, and yeah, you can know everything medically, but when it's your own child seizing, it, it's just horrific, and I wouldn't wish it on any parent. Um, so we were behind her rushing to the ambulance, uh, rushing to the hospital. And then when we arrived at the hospital, they did not let us back with her because she was still seizing. Um, they then had to give her so much medicine to stop the seizure that she stopped breathing and they had to intubate her. And um, it, it was really hard to see uh, a 12 month old infant. The first time I saw her, she was intubated. And it it reminded me so much of the training we do in pediatrics where we train, um, you know, pediatric advanced life support on these little mannequins. And she looked exactly like that mannequin with um, the, you know, intubated at the time um, and on a machine. It was, it was frightening. How was she ultimately diagnosed? Uh, through whole exome sequencing, yeah. So when she was 18 months old, um, they did the genetic testing, and we got a result just a couple months later that um, she had this de novo um, abnormality in her calcium channels, the CACNA1A mutation. This is a, a condition listeners may have heard of because of the activity of, of the foundation, but at the time, she was one of a handful of patients known to have this diagnosis. What were you told about it? So we were told that it was a a known cause of epileptic encephalopathy, um, which she was diagnosed with epileptic encephalopathy, but that it was more commonly known as causing some ataxias and other things. And it was just coming to light that it maybe caused some other conditions as well. 
And they, they told me that really she was the first in the U.S. that they were aware of, at least this geneticist and this genetic testing company, and that there was just a couple other in Australia and throughout the world. Um, but there, there certainly was no foundation to go to, and it, there was very little information about what the prognosis would be for her. What have been the effects of the condition on Gabrielle? They've been quite significant. So she's had um, really difficult to control or intractable epilepsy. Her seizures have um, really initially really progressed where they were um, happening to the point of every month um, lasting two to three hour long seizures that we could not control at home. So we would end up in the ER and have to get IV medication to stop the seizures. In addition to that, she um, didn't start walking until she was three and a half. And her, her walking is still very limited. She has an ataxic gait. Um, and so her, her walking is very unusual and she, she isn't very stable. Um, she also has autism. And so she has very limited eye contact and, and social skills. And she is nonverbal as well with limited forms of communication. And so she, she, she has major delays. She's around, she's nine now. And I would say that she's, she mostly acts like a one-year-old um, and uh, has difficult to control epilepsy. What therapy or treatments does she receive, and, and how does her experience line up with other people with the condition? Yeah, so I'll share, I'll share the story of, of how the foundation impacted Gabby's treatments. And so she, she was diagnosed with CACNO1A, but even at the time she was diagnosed, we didn't know if there was too much calcium or too little calcium in her neurons, And so because we know it's an issue with the calcium channels. And so... About three years ago, we moved to Boston and started seeing Dr. Ann Padori, who's a, a genetic epileptologist um, at Boston Children's. And she was able to tell me that research had been done, that we now knew that for Gabby's specific mutation, that there was too much calcium. And so she recommended that we trial verapamil, which is an off-label use of this medicine that's usually used for blood pressure. It's a calcium channel blocker. And... Wow, Gabby just had a really amazing response to this verapamil. And so um, we started it two and a half years ago, and she went two and a half years without having to go to the hospital. Her status epileptic has resolved with this medication, which is only because we knew, you know, the underlying root cause of her epilepsy. Interestingly enough, I'm connected with three other um, kiddos in the world that have the same point mutation as her that I'm in contact with. One is in Sydney, Australia, and her daughter also was having these debilitating long seizures lasting one to two hours. Um, and so she now is on verapamil as well because um, myself um, and, and my daughter's neurologist have spoken with her neurologist, and her daughter has had a really good response to the verapamil. And then we've been able to talk to a researcher up in Canada, Dr. Elsa Rosignal, who actually has a mouse model with Gabrielle's specific point mutation, and she's trialing verapamil on those mice. Um, and what we're seeing in my daughter and this little girl Imogen and the mice is very interesting where it seems to limit status epilepticus, but it increases the daily seizures. And so Gabby has had less um, status events, but she has had a major increase in daily seizures. So she has seizures every single day at this point. Well, let's bring Sunita into this. Sunita, how typical is Gabrielle's experience and how well understood is the condition today? How heterogeneous is it? 
Yeah, thanks, Danny. The, the condition is quite heterogeneous, but there are a cohort of patients in our community that have an experience very much similar to Gabrielle's experience. Um, we know a lot about the condition from the sense of we know what this gene does, we know what it's responsible for, and we know when there's variants along this gene, the sort of symptoms that patients will experience. But the condition itself affects people differently, depending on A, where the mutation is, maybe um, uh, whether it lets too much calcium in or too little calcium into the neurons. So the, the community is quite heterogeneous, but there is a lot that we know about it. The CACNA1A Foundation has been around only since 2020, but it, it's working to support translational research with the goal of having at least one treatment for the condition in the pipeline within the next five years. How is it going about doing that? Yeah, so we, we have a very ambitious goal because as you can hear from Deb's story, the children are quite severely affected and their quality of life really needs, uh, there's a high unmet need to improve the children's quality of life. And so the foundation is, is a parent-led organization really focused on trying to bring treatments to the community. And we're doing that in a variety of ways. We can get into sort of the specifics around that, but one of the ways we're doing this is funding translational research. So really focused on funding research that is going to bring a treatment to the clinic. We're doing that by um, enrolling families in different natural history studies, so collecting data on patients' lived experiences. And then we're also sort of developing assets um, that can help bring the community to clinical trials and de-risk an investment by a, a pharma or biotech company looking at this disease as a target. So you've been able to ramp this up quite quickly. How did the organization go about creating a research agenda? Sure. So uh, the, the group of parents that started the organization and the, and the leadership since then has, has basically built this collaborative team of not only families affected by this disease, but researchers and clinicians who are treating our families. And we basically have gotten together and built a research network and tried to do the analysis of where the gaps are, like what is preventing uh, treatment development in this area. And so with the, with the expertise of everyone around the table, We've come up with a sense of where we need to invest to unlock additional knowledge. And then we've tried to also get a sense of what types of treatment modalities exist that would work uh, potentially on CACNA1A-related disorders. And we've essentially made targeted investments in those areas to either bring about more knowledge or to um, essentially fast-track our proof-of-concept studies to hopefully bring about investments in this area. A lot of the work CACNA-1A has focused on is gathering data. It's working with the Chung Lab at Columbia University on a natural history study. It also has its own CACNA-1A data collection program with the RareX, which is part of Global Genes, which produces this podcast. It's also doing a natural history with Citizen, which uses electronic medical records to pull together a natural history. Can you explain why you have these different efforts concurrently? Do they seek to do different things? Yes. So as you, I think everyone, all the listeners probably know that, you know, participating in research studies is a really important way for 
the community of researchers and families to really understand how CACNA1A families are affected by this disease. And each of these studies that we've sort of promoted within our community as being important research opportunities collects different types of information and they complement one another to really provide a comprehensive and robust understanding of CACNA1A related disorders. They do a little bit different things in terms of the types of data that they're collecting. Um, but, you know, they all complement each other and they're all really important things to, to participate in. Does having those three different efforts create any unusual burdens on the patient community or affect their willingness to participate in multiple data collection efforts at once? Yeah, so I think there's, you know, unfortunately a burden on families to have to fill out multiple surveys across, you know, a, a number of different research studies. And that is part of, you know, the burden that we all bear as, as rare disease families to get our data out there. Um, but the data that patients provide is one of the most valuable pieces of information that researchers can use to advance therapeutic development for rare diseases. So it's really critical that families, you know, make the time to participate in these in these research efforts. And, you know, at the end of the day, the, the natural history study that we are collecting will hopefully help us create a clinical trial that doesn't require a placebo arm because we have data of patients who are no, not on any sort of medication right now. And we're starting to understand the natural progression of the disease. So the hope is that by participating and by getting enough families to participate, we won't have to have a control arm in the study. And will data from all of these efforts be available to all researchers? Who controls access to the data? Yeah. So, you know, we've been really intentional about creating these opportunities for families to participate in 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 an open science manner. So, you know, for example, with the Chung Lab, you know, Wendy, while she is the Dr. Chung is the PI on the on the study or the principal investigator on the study, she is incredibly collaborative. She's open to sharing the data with any researcher that, you know, wants to look at the data. She shares the data with the foundation. Obviously, all the data is de-identified, de um, but she's incredibly collaborative and it's one of the reasons we've partnered with her. Um, RareX, which I know a lot of the listeners are familiar with, um, you know, is is also an open science platform where they are basically getting the research and the data they're collecting out there to as many eyes as possible. And that's really important for conditions like CACNA1A, where there may be researchers looking at a particular symptom or a particular disorder, but doesn't they don't necessarily know that CACNA1A has that disorder as part of its manifestation. And so it gets more eyes on our data and that's, you know, good for everyone. And then in terms of citizen as well, they, they've, they are putting data in the hands of pa patients and families and they're, you know, combining medical records. So a lot of these clinician medical notes, things that patients typically don't see or don't have access to, Citizen is now putting that on their platform so families can easily access that and share that. And they're also creating these sort of natural history study data um, insights from the medical records they're collecting for our community. So it, they're, they're all going to be accessible to anyone who wants to see them. You're also working with Combined Brain can you explain for listeners what Combined Brain is and what you're doing there? Sure. Yeah. So Combined Brain is a consortium of, of 
I think 60 now plus neurodevelopmental neurodevelopmental disorders. And the organization itself is really devoted to finding where there are synergies between the organizations and where they can, what efforts we can collectively do as a consortium of rare neurodevelopmental diseases to speed the track, speed the, the pathway to clinical trials. And so they do a number of different initiatives that help um, all of us along, including hosting a biorepository, which is uh, an area where um, families can donate biospecimens like blood or CSF fluid, and we can use that to develop um, research tools like iPSC neurons for, for different research studies. They're also participating in a large study called Project Find Out to, to increase or improve genetic testing accessibility for condition for kiddos that may have these underlying neurodevelopmental conditions, but takes a long time to get them diagnosed. And so all along the continuum from diagnosis to clinical trials, they have put efforts in that are meant to help all of us out to, to help all of us in our efforts to get to clinical trials. You've also started the CACNA1A Research Network. What is that and, and how does it work? Sure. So the CACNA1A Research Network is really, you know, something I alluded to earlier, which is a collaborative network of families, scientists or researchers and clinicians who are seeing fam- seeing our CACNA1A families. And the idea behind it is really that all of us, each stakeholder is going to be at the table so that we can collaborate and think about how do we get to treatments and cures for this this rare neurodevelopmental disorder using the expertise of everyone around the table? So traditionally, knowledge has been siloed in different labs or different clinics or even uh, in patients' own homes. And what the, the effort of the network is to bring all of those sources of information or knowledge or lived experience to the table so that we can understand how do we get to where we are now, which is no treatment that's specifically available for CACNA1A to a time where there are multiple treatment options. So when a kiddo is diagnosed, instead of saying there's nothing that we can do, a doctor can say, look, these are the options for your kid. And that's really the goal of the foundation. There are a number of neurodevelopmental disorders that might have underlying genetic causes, but share many of the same manifestations as CACNA1A. Are you doing anything to look across similar diseases? Yeah, I I think that's a really interesting question because we know that there's overlap between, you know, a lot of these rare neurodevelopmental disorders, especially, you know, diseases where there are channelopathy diseases. So, you know, ours is a calcium ion channel disorder. There are other calcium ion channel disorders, and then there are other sort of ion channel disorders more broadly. And the one really remarkable thing about the rare disease community is just how open and collaborative everyone in the community is and has been since the organization is formed. And so we've worked really closely just in terms of patient advocacy groups with other, you know, ion channel disorders. We've worked to create our own consortium of other calcium channelopathies. And so we meet with those patient advocacy leaders and researchers in those areas um, on a monthly basis. And then, you know, through through partnerships like Combined Brain and RareX, we are collaborating and sharing data across disorders so that, you know, any potential, you know, research finding that may apply to us is something that we will find out quickly and we will try to try to bring to our network to apply to, to our disease group. And what's the path forward? How hopeful are you about 
seeing potential treatments advance to the clinic? I'm really hopeful. You know, I can say my, I have a two and a half, or I had a, I have a five-year-old daughter now who was diagnosed with a cacnoine related disorder at two and a half. And, you know, as devastating as it was to receive that diagnosis, I had no idea how much science has you know, move forward in the last 10 years in terms of finding treatments for rare sort of monogenic conditions like CACNA1A. And now being part of the leadership team at the foundation, I really, I tell my families in the community all the time that I've never been more hopeful than I am now. Science really is moving at such a fast pace. We have seen some of these rare, similar rare genetic conditions be cured. And I think in our kids' lifetime, we will absolutely have treatments available to them to, so that they will have a better quality of life. And really, the science is, is incredible. And I, I think that with the team that we have at the foundation, our families, and the research network, we're going to get this done. Deb Andresic, pediatrician and mother of a daughter with CACNA 1A, and Sunita Malapati, vice president of the CACNA 1A Foundation. Deb, Sunita, thank you both for your time today. We appreciate it, Danny. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.